Well, it's great to be back again tonight and to uh, open the Word of God together. I'll ask you to take your Bibles and turn in them to Galatians chapter 1. As we were singing the first song, it was, uh, I leaned over to my wife and I said, oh, that's interesting because that's exactly what we're going to be talking about tonight, this whole issue of the reality of being able to discern really what is right and what isn't right, like those People wanted to change the song, change the theology of that song, and would you have been able to identify the reality of whether that song was, those words were okay or not okay in light of the theology of it. And uh, so uh, we're going to talk a little bit about all of that tonight through the eyes of the Apostle Paul as he addresses those believers in Galatia. So let's bow for a word of prayer and then we'll begin our time together. Father, We thank you for uh, our time tonight. We thank you how you providentially orchestrate all of things together for your glory and how even our singing and and what we are preaching tonight comes together even even though words were never spoken by Chris or myself, and yet you always seem to bring it all together. You're unifying it all for the sake of your glory. We praise you for that. We ask your blessing upon it impact our lives through the study of it. For your sake, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we have begun a study over the last, uh, I think, two weeks or so of this powerful letter by the Apostle Paul as he writes to the believers in this region of Galatia. That's what it is. It is a region named for that by the Romans who were in power at the time. And so this book unlike his other epistles, is not written to a particular church like he would for the Ephesian believers and that such, but more to a region, a a group of churches in this region known as Galatia. And so the Apostle Paul is writing because it is urgent. Word has gotten back to him that something sinister is amok in the churches. What is happening specifically? Well, the people, the professed believers, the true believers, those who came to faith under the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul and Barnabas as they traveled through the region in Acts 13 and 14, they are being confused concerning the crucial doctrine of justification. Now, that word isn't mentioned in the Gospel of or in this particular letter, but that is really the issue, the issue of justification, how one is justified before a holy God. How can one stand before a holy God and not be uh, under the wrath of God? How does one get into that position? And some are following the foolish teachings of others who have come in to First of all, discredit the Apostle Paul and his message and thereby undermine the true gospel and in doing that then attack what is true and real Christian freedom. That's the overall gist of what is going on here in this letter to the Galatian believers. So they're being led into confusion really about the gospel. The confusion about the gospel. 
And I think sometimes we can get the idea that since we know the gospel, since we have believed upon Jesus Christ for our own salvation, since we are true Christians, we can get the idea that we can't be confused by others. That something can come along when it speaks of the things in the gospel language and that we can't be confused by others when it comes to the gospel. But it's obvious, even from this letter, that that is not the case. In fact, I will say that if we don't get the gospel right, if we are not on in the right understanding of the true gospel, if it isn't settled once and for all in our hearts and minds, according to what the Scriptures teach, then we can be easily confused by others about it. We can be easily confused by things we hear on the radio or books that we read or even songs and requests where someone asks if they can change a song. And if we were on that committee, if we were part of the decision process, would we say, just like the writers of that song said, no, you're not going to do that? Or would we be confused? And if we are confused, in the end, what will happen is we may not finish well in the faith. We may not finish well in the faith. Remember what the Apostle Paul says to the Galatian believers in chapter 5 and verses 3 and 4. He says, I testify again to every man who receives circumcision. That was the outward act. That was the Jesus plus this activity, this religious rite. Everyone who receives circumcision, that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. In other words, if you want to keep that for your justification at any one level, then you better be willing and obligated you are to keep the whole law perfectly. And if you do that, you have been severed, notice verse 4, from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law. You are severed from Christ. You have fallen, he says, from grace. That's the Apostle Paul's concern. That is his heart. That is why he is so urgent in this letter. In order to finish well, we must know the gospel. We must know the gospel. Not simply just intellectually. Not simply just know the terms of it and the, the language of the gospel, but we must know it experientially. And therefore, not redefine how someone is justified by God. We cannot redefine it in any kind of way, either in its terms or in its outworking. And that's what I want us to see tonight. I want us to see this tonight as we begin, because it's the basis for Paul's entire argument throughout this entire letter. And I want to start by taking us backwards a bit, back to verses 3 and 4 of chapter 1. We have already talked somewhat in an overview fashion about this, but I've been struck by this over and over and over again this last week as I was studying for our time tonight. This is the very heart of the gospel. Paul says in verses 3 and 4, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us out of this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. I'll say it again, that is the very heart of the gospel. 
the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins. Now, within evangelical circles, within the church at large, and we even heard testimony about that tonight, even with the song we were singing, number 177 that we sang. Within evangelical circles, that fact that the Lord Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins, that fact is not necessarily an agreed-upon issue. It is a debated issue. It's a debated issue. Most if not all, within Orthodox Christian circles, will agree that Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins. In other words, he is the only substitutionary and satisfactory sacrifice that could pay the penalty for our sin. So we could conclude, without faith in Jesus Christ, Our sins are still ours. If it were not Jesus Christ dying for our sins, we still have our sins to pay for. And he did it, notice, Paul says here, in order to what? He did it in order to deliver us out of this present age. Some of your texts might say, rescue us out of this present age. Now, that is an extremely important phrase. That is a massive phrase for the Apostle Paul to begin with, and, and, and we need to dwell on it for a moment. Because oftentimes, within evangelicalism, this is where many get confused when it comes to the gospel. Because this verse right there in verse 4 teaches us four very important truths about the gospel upon which we must dwell and remind ourselves of every day. Remember I said a few weeks ago, we have to preach the gospel to ourselves all the time. We as Christians who are saved people need to be reminding ourselves, that's what I mean, preach to ourselves, remind ourselves, exhort ourselves, talk to ourselves, if you will, about the truths and the actualities of the gospel. And this is what Paul is reminding these believers of. He's starting with what they must remind themselves of every day. And first, he says, in the true gospel, in the true gospel, we can clearly see a willingness of Jesus Christ to offer himself for us. He says, it is grace and to you and peace from our God, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, notice verse 4, who gave himself, who gave himself. In other words, the crucifixion was Jesus Christ in all of his greatness, Jesus Christ in all of his excellence, Jesus Christ in all of his majesty, in all of his glory, the crucifixion was Jesus Christ offering himself voluntarily. Now that doesn't seem like it's a very profound reality, and yet within that is all the profoundness of the gospel. Because that is to say that Jesus gave the most precious gift that he could ever give, and that gift was himself. He could not give a greater gift. Ephesians 5 and verse 25 says, He gave himself up. 
Titus 2, verse 14 says, He gave Himself for us. That simply is to emphasize that no one took His life away. When it says here that He gave Himself, when Ephesians says He gave Himself up, when Titus says He gave Himself for us, that simply is to say and to remind us and to be impactful upon us the reality that no one took His life away. He gave it. So anytime you come across the gospel or what is touted as a gospel in any kind of way, it intimates in any way a subtlety that says that Jesus was not the voluntary sacrifice of himself. That is a false gospel. You read it in a book. You hear somebody try to massage the stark reality of that sharp line away by speaking about Jesus Christ on the cross, saying something that isn't true about Him in relative to His voluntary nature of giving Himself, that is a false gospel. It is not the true gospel. You know, without a shadow of a doubt, the true gospel is Jesus voluntarily giving Himself up. That is the true gospel. And then Paul goes on to say, secondly, the true gospel says that he gave it with a purpose. He gave himself up voluntarily, and it was with a purpose. Notice, it was for our sins, he says in verse 4. He gave himself for our sins. Of course, that simply means, and that in our understanding, we should understand this, that there is a transaction that took place with Christ on the cross. There was a transaction that happened. Jesus voluntarily gives himself, and he gives himself transactionally for the cost of our sins. We were the ones who deserved to die. We were the ones who deserved the eternal wrath of God to be placed upon us for all eternity. Because the debt of our sin was an infinite debt. But Jesus Christ took our place on the cross. The transaction was laid upon Him. He became our substitute. This is the great doctrine of imputation, whereby our sins are placed upon Him and His righteousness is given to us who believe. He became our substitute. This is why those men who wrote that song would not allow the wording of that song to be changed. He appeased the wrath of God by being our substitute. He gathered up all of our sins and He put them on His own shoulders and He paid the penalty by His death. So when you read the words for our sins, make sure you understand that in there, in the true gospel is that doctrine, the doctrine of substitution, the doctrine of imputation, so that Jesus Christ's death was not simply an example of voluntary self-sacrifice. That's not where it only ended. It didn't just end there. It's not a moral picture of humanity for us to follow in Jesus' footsteps as this humble, self-sacrificial servant, and morally we can rise to that occasion if we just get our minds right. No. He's not setting some moralistic standard of willful sacrifice by which you and I as people can attain to some kind of righteousness on our own that will be acceptable to a holy God for our sin. No, Jesus Christ was an actual atonement. He was an actual atonement for sin 
he paid the full price, and that ensured that God could now forgive those who believe because his pure justice is fully satisfied. So you see right there in just that first few words of Jesus' voluntary substitutionary sacrifice of himself, you have all of these wonderful doctrines of the true gospel. You have his substitution, you have his satisfaction, you have the imputation, you have this offering, you have the atonement being seen so that When you hear the gospel, you know for sure, you know without a shadow of a doubt that anybody who's talking about a gospel that's other than justification in Jesus Christ alone, there is not a real gospel in what they say. There is no personal justification before God without the blood of Jesus Christ. Anybody who says otherwise is preaching a false gospel. Now, I want us to ponder those previous words for a moment. Ponder, he gave himself for our sins. Just just let that sit on you. He gave himself for our sins. Let that sit upon your mind in its full weight. He, Jesus gave himself for our sins. Let that sit there. If that is true, if that is true, then there is no need to ever think that you can do anything to help yourself. If God incarnate gave himself for our sins, there is nothing you and I could ever do to ever think we could ever do anything to help ourselves. If he died for our sins, then God is satisfied. God is fully satisfied. So it is foolishness to try to add to it. It is utter foolishness to try to define the gospel in any other way than full satisfaction of the wrath of God by Jesus Christ. And so the true gospel is the voluntary sacrifice of himself which satisfies the full wrath of God. Paul says, you've got to understand the gospel, people. You've got to get this right. This is, uh, we're going to get to it in just a moment, but he says in verse 6, I'm amazed. I'm stunned at what I'm hearing about you. I am shocked to my core at what is going on. You, you have messed up the gospel. You have missed it in your minds. You must get it right. The gospel is a voluntary sacrifice of Jesus Christ for the full wrath of God. And then thirdly, thirdly, he says the true gospel tells us that the objective of Christ's sacrifice of himself was to deliver us out of this present evil age. To deliver us. 
I think this is what was being confused with the Galatian believers. This is what really was being confused with them. And this is what happens to many today within evangelicalism. We see it going on as, as we see people who we've respected and people who've, who we've known and, and authors that we've read. And, and over time, they seem to be drifting. They drift off in this other direction that doesn't seem to be true to the nature and, and biblical understanding of what the gospel is. And we scratch our heads and we wonder what's going on. And I think it's the same thing that was going on in the Galatian believers. They were being confused. We forget. We forget. Or, or many within many places in, in evangelicalism, they're just taught wrongly. They're taught wrongly. We forget that Christ has delivered us out of this present evil age. We, we forget that little statement and the doctrine of deliverance is never talked about. It's never looked at except in some charismatic circles where it talks about this bizarre kind of mystical, ethereal deliverance from all this weirdness. But listen, the doctrine of deliverance must never be set aside. It must never be forgotten in our heart and in our mind, or we will quickly get confused as to whether you are secure in Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ is so secure that it secures us so that we can never be removed from salvation in the heart and mind of God because we are in Jesus Christ. And when we don't think about those things and we don't think about the doctrine of deliverance, we can quickly believe that somehow maybe I'm not saved. Paul says Christ died with a purpose. He died for our sins so that He might deliver us out. That He might rescue us. I love that. You know what rescue means here in the original language? It means to tear away. To tear away. Or to, to actively rip away. That's the idea. This was something outside of us, not something we did. It was something done to us by one who came by and ripped us away from what we were in. That's why I think the translators of, of some of your translations use the word rescue. I think rescue is a great word. He has rescued us. The New American Standard says delivers us. That's a good word, but I think, I think rescue implies or, or at least gives us a picture of something that's that's more deadly, something that's more needful. Think about it with me. Right? Build this scenario in your own mind. You are now lost at sea. You're like a bobber in the water. You are there. You are engulfed by the waves. The waves are crashing over you. You're trying to keep your head above water. There is no shore around. You couldn't swim for a day and find any kind of shore whereby you might be able to save yourself. You're in the ocean, and unless someone comes along, something miraculous happens to you. You are doomed to die. Guess what happens? All of a sudden, a Coast Guard helicopter shows up, flying overhead. 
and someone is lowered to you in the water, and they snatch you out of the sea. They rip you away from it. They take you from the clutches of death, and they raise you up into the helicopter, and off you go. You are rescued. You have been delivered from the doom of pending death. Paul says this is what the death of Christ on the cross has done for us. It has ripped us away from the clutches of this present evil age. Now Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, being very specific with his words here, right? He says you... Christ died for our sins so that He might deliver us out of this present evil age. You notice this evil age is not the world. I think this is a crucial point to understand when it comes to the true gospel. The objective of salvation is not to simply take us out of this world. Right? That's what the health, wealth, and prosperity guys teach. That's what they say the gospel is. Believe in Jesus and everything's going to get better. Your wealth's going to go up. Your prosperity's going to go up. Your health is going to be good. And if it doesn't, you just don't have enough faith. That's their gospel, but that's a lie. That is a false gospel. The gospel of God, the true gospel, doesn't say He will take us out of this world. That's an easy thing to do. We are not taken out of this world. In fact, we have been left here for a time in order that we might live for Him. God could save us and just remove us from this place, but He doesn't do that. There's coming a day when He will do that. There's coming a time when we will be snatched away with Jesus Christ from this world. We will be removed. That's the rapture. But present evil age doesn't mean that. That's not what Paul's saying. What Paul means here, what the Holy Spirit is saying, is the evil system that is controlled and ruled by the evil one. The sinful realm. What controls the sinful realm. In other words, all of those who don't know Christ by faith are part of the system, even though they don't think they're part of that system. You say, how do you know that? Go over to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2 clearly tells us this. Notice what it says. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Right? Romans chapter 12 verse 1 says we are to offer ourselves as living sacrifices. Right? We are walking offerings. That's the juxtaposition of this living death thing, this living sacrifice. That's what a Christian does. Before that, we were dead, yet we were walking around like dead people. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We thought we were living. We thought we were fully alive. But Paul says, no, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. According to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. This system of evil, this evil age. Paul says, among them we too formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. This is who we are. We are part of the evil system 
that is overseen by the prince of the power of the air. God has given him the ability, the time to exercise his wickedness among the world. And yet, it says, God being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions and transgressions and sin, made us alive. How? With Christ. So it's with Christ. That is the condition of all people without Christ. Dead. We are in this present evil age. This is Paul's way of saying, listen, that the doctrine of depravity is prevalent wherever you look. We are depraved. We may not exercise our depravity to its fullest extent, but the heart is deceitful and wicked above all things, just as Jeremiah says, and it is practiced in action because we are in and of the present evil age, the evil system ruled by the prince of the power of the air. But by means of Christ, we have been rescued. We have been delivered from. We are rescued so that we might now serve Him. We have been ripped away from that. One commentator put it this way, we have been torn away from, quote, the totality of human life dominated by sin and opposed to God. This is not what the liberal church believes. This is not what the liberal gospel says. The liberal gospel says you're okay. You're in the neutral zone. All you got to do is be convinced. If I can convince you, if I can do my salesmanship enough on the things that convince you that where you are isn't a good place, you'll choose the right direction and you'll choose God because after all, God is a loving God. He loves everybody. But if you don't choose the right way, well, then you're on the road to destruction, and yet the true gospel says, no, that's not where you are at all. There is no neutral zone. You are dead. You are in the present evil age. You need to be rescued. So even though as Christians we live in this world, we have been delivered out of its rule. We have been delivered out of its control. It no longer rules us, and therefore we no longer are obligated to live as we did before against Christ. So the true gospel is a rescue. The true gospel is a deliverance. We have been removed, as Paul says in Colossians, from the domain of darkness and and placed into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of His dear Son. And then fourthly, the true gospel says that all of this is according to the will of God. We are delivered out of the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. In other words, the sacrifice of Christ on the cross that would bring about the deliverance of all who would believe, that was in the mind of God in eternity past. And so on the cross... 
Christ and the death of Christ and the deliverance of all from the present evil age all had their source and beginning in the heart of God. Man doesn't choose God, it is God who chooses man. And any gospel that says otherwise is a false gospel. It's a false gospel. And so there's not a single word here about anything we do. Paul clearly says that it's all of God, it's none of us. What they tell us is what God has done in human history through Jesus Christ. That's what these words tell us. What God has done. All that God has accomplished in human history for those whom He has chosen to save. So the true gospel is not about what we do for God. It's not about how we conjure up some kind of effort in order that God might help us. The gospel is about what God has done for us. Any gospel that intimates otherwise, any gospel that changes the wording and adjusts the defining and changes the meaning to say that it's something that we help God with is a false gospel. It is God who came up with the plan of the gospel. And it is God, the Son, who made the voluntary sacrifice for our sins that we might be delivered. All of this was in the keeping with the will of the Godhead. Which makes sense. Therefore, all glory goes to God. All glory goes to God, which is how Paul ends this whole thing. He says, to whom be the glory forevermore. To whom be the glory forevermore. All glory goes to God. So if salvation... If salvation is all of God and all from God, if justification is through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ alone, which was according to the will of the Godhead before time ever began, if all glory belongs to God for saving, then to think or to teach otherwise is to pollute or change the gospel. And if we have a different gospel, then we have removed Christ, the only one who saves. Let me say that again. If we have a different gospel at any point, then what we have done is we have removed Christ. He's the only one who can save. You've removed salvation. But it gets worse than that. It's worse than that if it could get worse than that. It does, because people will believe a false gospel and think they are okay. But this is where Paul begins in verse 6. This is where Paul begins, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. Paul is not simply alarmed at what is happening. Paul is stunned. I would dare say for us that if we are not stunned when we read these things or when we talk with someone who maybe we knew for a long time or maybe in times past who professed to believe upon Jesus Christ and yet they are following now a gospel of somehow 
Jesus plus their efforts, we shouldn't just simply go, boy, that's sad. We should be stunned. We should be as stunned as the Apostle Paul. I was trying to think as I was reading this, and I was I was just, Paul's words were just resting upon me. I was thinking the, of, of the last time I was actually stunned at something happening. It was really an indictment upon my own heart as I thought about this in reference to the gospel, thinking about the last time I was really stunned at something. Because when, you, when you're in the ministry and when you're around uh, sin, it seems like sin in your own heart and life, and people come to you with issues in their own life, it, it, it really becomes an unshocking reality. You, you really don't get shocked by much anymore. I mean, anybody who's dealt in discipleship and counseling of other lives, you realize sin, even in a Christian life, can take you places you never Never thought you'd go. And not much is shocking. So I was trying to think, when was the last time I was shocked? And, and, and the only thing that kept coming to my mind was when 9-11 happened, it wasn't so shocking to see planes hit the towers. That was, that was stunning. I was like, wow, what is going on being a, from a former airline or air traffic control industry and knowing and seeing things, thinking to myself all the technical realities of how that might have to happen. But what really shocked me, what stunned me was when the towers collapsed. I sat there stunned that this massive building would come down and be a pile of powder in just seconds. That was stunning. Well, that's the Apostle Paul here about these believers. The Apostle Paul was so stunned by what he is hearing that he doesn't even pause to say anything that might be remotely thought of as a kind word to them. In all of his letters, in all the previous letters that Paul has written to churches, there is something in all of them, of some commendation about them. He says something kind about them in his prayers for them and that he sees their faith and he knows their hope and and all of these things. But there's none of that here. He's so stunned. He's sitting there with his jaw at the floor. And there's good reason for it. Because there was a crisis among the professed Christians. What is it? Someone had let Paul know that the Galatian believers were adding to the gospel. Paul is shocked at that. Some Judaizers, Jewish professed Christians who were who were staunch legalists. In other words, for them, justification was Jesus plus their, their religious activities, their work. They had come in and they had infiltrated into the region of Galatia, and they wanted to have the Galatian believers go through certain mosaic rituals, mosaic law-keeping rituals, before they would be considered Christians in the eyes particularly of the Judaizers. In other words, they wanted to add works to the gospel. They wanted to come in, and they were saying to the believers in Galatia, you're, you're not fully a Christian. Yeah, you believe in Jesus, that's fine, but you haven't been circumcised yet. You need to be circumcised. You need to add on top of your faith in Jesus Christ this effort as the basis for your salvation. Paul's hearing this. And so Paul immediately begins to write this letter. It's almost as if he would have slammed his paper down on the desk in front of a 
amanuensis, somebody who would write this out and just started speaking. Paul, Paul is so incensed by all of this. He's so shocked by it that the first thing from his mind is that he is absolutely stunned. Why? Because if what he is hearing is true, if this is true of them, if this is true of those who believed in the gospel when Paul and Barnabas were there on their missionary journeys, if this is true of them, then they are abandoning the true Christian faith. They are not finishing well. In fact, the word he uses here is a very strong word. He says, I am amazed, notice, that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ. If you've ever been in the military, you know that word is not a good word to use. Deserting or defection is a very serious offense. Paul is using a very serious word here. I am amazed, and he categorizes it under this participle. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting. It means abandonment. Abandonment. None of us would like to be accused of abandoning anything, let alone somebody we love. In a military context, particularly a military context of war, to be a deserter is to be one of the worst kinds of people. And if you are caught in desertion, it brings about the penalty of death. Notice here, notice in verse 6 that this abandonment is not just from some information. It's not that we're intellectually abandoning some kind of information. It isn't that you have some disagreement with some information that's being said. That's not what we're talking about. It is that the information of the gospel, the truth of the gospel, is intimately attached to the very one who gave it. And therefore, you are abandoning the one who gave it. In other words, the gospel isn't just words. The gospel is attached to the very one who gave the gospel. That is why Paul says, I'm amazed that you so quickly are abandoning notice that you are deserting him. You see, Paul has just articulated the true gospel in the first few verses, particularly verses 3 and 4, and saying, all glory to God. And then he says, I'm amazed that you're abandoning him. Yeah, they came in to tell you other things, but what's happening by you following those other things is you're not just having this intellectual thing go on. You are actually abandoning him. And who is the him? It is the one who called you by means of or in the grace of Christ. Who's that? Who called you by means of or in the grace of Christ as a Christian? Who called you to the place of salvation? Who's the one who granted you your faith? Who, who drew you to himself to believe? Who are you abandoning if you change the gospel? You are abandoning God. It is God. This is why Paul is so shocked. What is shocking him is that here are some who have professed to believe what God said about salvation through Jesus Christ. 
And now in actuality, they are deserting God. In other words, this isn't something that has happened to them. This is something that they are doing to Him. They are actually leaving God. This is the definition of apostasy. Full-blown apostasy. These, if they stay on that course, if they're truly on that course, they are not true believers at all. They are apostates. Now that is something that we must once again ponder. To leave the true gospel is to leave the true God. Let me say that again. To leave the true gospel is to leave the true God. To leave the true God, beloved, this is what shocks Paul. To leave the true gospel is to leave the true God, and to leave the true God is to leave eternal life. To turn your back on it. You've never had it, and therefore you don't want it. You are walking away. You say, really, pastor? Is that accurate? Really? Yes. Just turn over for a moment to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. 1 John writing to the beloved saints wants you to know what a true Christian is. This is what a Christian is. This is a a, a letter all about how a Christian is to be in their life. This is the direction of sanctification. This isn't perfection. We'll never reach that this side of heaven. This is direction. This is who we are to be. This is what we are in Jesus Christ. Notice beginning in chapter 5 and verse 3. I'll read it there. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. So there's the reality, right? We are children of God when we love God and observe His commandments, verse 2 says. So we love what God says and we strive to obey what God says. That's our love for God. It's exercised in this striving to obey His commandments and we know that all that God asks of us, He has equipped us for, that's what makes it not burdensome. Verse 4, for whoever is born of God overcomes the world. Wow, that's a big statement. For whoever is born of God overcomes the world. So I have some power in me. I, I, I know Jesus Christ by faith. I know the commands of God. So there's power in me, obviously, if I'm born of God, to overcome the world. That's what it says. For whoever is born of God overcomes the world, overcomes the system. Why? Because you've been ripped out of it. You've been put into the realm of light, so you overcome the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Ah, now, how do I have victory over that? What's he say? Our faith. We believe. We hear the commandments of God. We read the Word of God. We believe it. We begin to walk according to it. That's what walk of faith means. Our faith is the victory that has overcome the world. There's only one way to overcome that which is of the evil age, and that is faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. Notice verse 5. All right, tell me who that is. Well, who is the one who overcomes the world? It's he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So there's faith in Jesus Christ, right? It's belief. It's the gospel. It's the true gospel of Jesus Christ. All that what Paul has been articulating in Galatians, right? Right? 
You believe upon Jesus Christ, you're the one who overcomes the world. Why? Because you have faith. It's faith in Jesus Christ. It's faith that's been granted to you by God, by faith. You are saved by faith. It is by grace through faith, he says in chapter 2 of Ephesians. So our faith is the victory that has overcome the world. Now go over to verse 18. We know that no one who is born of God sins. Now, he's not talking about perfection. He's talking about a practice, right? This, this habitual desire to continue to sin regardless of what the Word of God says. Why? Because we love His commandments, it said in verse 4. We know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who was born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. So it's protection. There's protection for you from the evil age and the ones that are operating in the evil age, i.e. Satan himself, his realm. And we know, verse 19, that we are of God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We know we've been rescued from that. We've ripped out from that. Verse 20, and we know. You notice all these things we know by way of our experiential understanding of practicing our faith. We know this, we know this, we know this. We know, verse 20, that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. Why? In order that we might know Him who is true. We have been given, we've been granted understanding by the grace of God. We've been granted faith. We believe upon Jesus Christ. We know the Son has come. He's given us understanding that we might know Him who is true. We know who Jesus Christ is. We know exactly who He is and what He has said and what He has accomplished. And we are in Him who is true. That's the reality of our place in Christ. As Ephesians 2 says, we are in Christ, this unity with Christ. We are in Him who is true and His Son, Jesus Christ. Do you understand how he's saying that? We're in His Son, Jesus Christ. That's, that's the relationship we have. This is the true God and eternal life. Do you notice that phrase? By faith in Jesus Christ, we are in Christ. This is why I said the Apostle Paul is saying if you reject the true gospel, if you turn your back on the true gospel, if you redefine the true gospel, you have now left Christ. Why? Because He is eternal life. He is the true God. He is eternal life. To know Jesus Christ is to know eternal life. To reject Jesus Christ is to reject eternal life. That's what Paul is saying to the believers in Galatians chapter 1. He says, I'm astonished. Galatians chapter 1 verse 6. I'm astonished that you are willfully leaving the eternal life for that which is not life at all. Now, We have to remember that Paul's missionary trip to Galatia had been a very great spiritual success. I mean, if we were to measure that according to how men look at successes, it was a great success. You go through Acts chapter 13 and 14, we'll be there in probably four or five years. The scriptures tell us that 
What was accomplished by God through Paul and Barnabas as they traveled through that region was miraculous. I mean, there was revival happening all over the place. Churches were being planted. People were being saved. They were confessing sin. They were believing upon Jesus Christ. And yet, it seems as soon as Paul and Barnabas are off the scene, as soon as the missionaries get on the truck and leave the area, the new converts are being enticed, and some are giving up on the true gospel. Almost have felt like Moses when he came down off the mountain and saw the people worshiping the calf. What are you guys doing? I've only been gone for a few short days. What do you mean this is the one who delivered you from Egypt? This is not God. This calf didn't deliver you from Egypt. Just like Moses, Paul is just throwing down the gauntlet. He's like Moses who takes the tablets and just drops them in utter horror and shock. Paul is just dropping it down. He's laying down the gauntlet of truth in order to, to arrest their attention because this is a serious problem. They're deserting God. And they're doing it, notice, for a different gospel. They're deserting God by giving up the gospel. In other words, they they were abandoning salvation by grace through faith alone for a gospel that doesn't save at all. They were trading that which saves for that which does not save. They're trading God for that which is not God. Listen, you cannot give up the gospel without giving up God himself. You can't give up the gospel. You can't turn your back on the gospel without turning your back on God himself. You can't say, well, I, I have a right relationship with God, but I, don't, I, I reject Jesus Christ. You can't have that. That's a false gospel. And I think this is the danger in our day. This is the reason that we see so many within evangelicalism today not finishing well. They use all kinds of flowery terms. They use even very intellectual arguments for why they're doing what they're doing. And yet when you open the gospel and when you open the scriptures and look at the scriptures, you can tell they have abandoned the gospel. And they don't realize in abandoning the gospel, they have abandoned God himself. For whatever reason, whether it's been some other teaching that has been dominant in their minds for years before that, and they have been putting it off, and finally it comes to fruition, whether they have been overly influenced in some way by some false teacher who has come down the pipe and and fed into them subtly worldly thinking, or whether it's just the exercise of their own pride and self-determination, and I will determine where I go, whatever the reason, the danger in the church today is the abandonment of the true gospel for something that is not the gospel at all. How does this happen? How does it happen? Well, we're going to get into that more next time, but it happens through distortion. It happens through distortion. What do I mean? It happens through the promulgation of untruth as if it is truth. Just introductory comment. Notice what Paul says in verse 7. 
He says, you're, you're abandoning God, you're deserting Him for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to what? Distort the gospel of Christ. I want to distort the gospel of Christ. That's how it happens. It happens through distortion, twisting. So what do we need to remember from our time tonight? What do we need to remember? Just two things. We need to remember the doctrine of deliverance. The doctrine of deliverance. That by faith in Christ... Those who believe upon Jesus Christ for salvation, those who believe upon Him alone, you have been delivered out of the realm of this evil age and placed into the kingdom of Christ. How has that happened? It has happened through the death of Christ, not through anything you have done, nothing you could do to secure yourself. You are secure in Jesus Christ and always in Jesus Christ. So remember the doctrine of deliverance. And then secondly, to abandon the true gospel of God is to abandon God. To abandon the true gospel of God is to abandon God. And to abandon God is to abandon eternity. To abandon God is eternally deadly. If you abandon God, that shows that you're not a true Christian. No Christian will ever abandon God. No true Christian will ever abandon the true God or the true gospel. Why? Because it is God who holds them secure. We'll get more next time. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for... Just a glimpse, really, scratching the surface of all that's here. Surely you'll take us here again. We have more that needs to be addressed, more that needs to be said, more that needs to be impactful upon our hearts and lives. Lord, it's easy to be confused. But it's not easy to be confused when we know the true gospel when we're not confused about the true gospel, there's no way that anybody else with a different gospel will ever confuse us. And so I pray that we would indulge ourselves every day preaching the true gospel to ourselves. The great and magnificent truth of the satisfaction and substitution and imputation, justification, atonement of Jesus Christ, that by faith alone, in Him alone, according to the Scriptures alone, to the glory of You alone, we know that we are secure in Christ. So help us revel in that. Help us be reminded of that. And knowing that we ought to be shocked and stunned when we hear people and friends and acquaintances we know who say they're saved but begin to define the gospel as something that is not true. Shocking. Help us to be humble, compassionate in our exhortations with them, pleading with them to come to the true gospel. For the sake of their souls, for the sake of your glory, 
for the honor of your great gospel that saves those who are lost. We praise you for our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has saved us from our sins. His name, all God's people said, amen.